Today on Launchpad, Scrooge McDuck's wearing used women's underwear, working harder, not smarter. Nice. We're here with Justin Askew, is that right? Yes, that right? Yeah, that's Justin right. Askew. Yeah. Talking about the business of being a drummer. Okay. Is that what we're that. talking about? Sure. Yeah. I'd, so uh, Brad said you were coming on. I was kind of excited about it. And then I was like, how does that relate to business? But I imagine it relates to business a lot. I mean, being on the road, being in a band. I mean, that's kind of like starting up your own company. I mean, we were on the road a lot, hustling. I mean, mm-hmm. the long days. The long, we, we party like rock stars. I mean, at yeah. my company anyway. So... Tell me about yourself. Well, as far as being a drummer and relating to business, you know, in a perfect world, I, it would have nothing to do with business. But um, I think just because of my entrepreneurial spirit, I could kind of run the band. You uh-huh. know, normally you would find management and stuff to do all that, give them their 10% and, you know, whatever. But I don't, I don't know if I'm a control freak, but <laughs> I like being in charge of that stuff. Um you know, I run two other businesses outside of that, so I just kind of lump them all together and do the same things for all of them. And since I was already doing it in my professional life, I thought, well, I'll just manage the band myself instead of paying somebody else to do it. Well, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, and it works out, you know. Well, what are your other businesses? I'm in a production company. Um, uh, two production companies, actually. One one here locally that does commercials and stuff like that, and then I've got a, I do a lot of work out in L.A., you know, hustling films and TV projects. Nice. Yeah. What's that consist of? Oh, geez. Mostly getting turned down. So <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm the poster it's child. Very relatable. Yeah, then. I'm the poster <laughs> child really, for failing really at everything that, that I do. <laughs> that's what I tell people. Everyone's like, oh, that's so cool you do that. And I'm so, like, yeah, I don't really do it. That's how, the, that's how the show got its name. Is So my one of my nicknames is Launchpad, and it's after Launchpad McQuack from oh, DuckTales. Yeah. Gotcha. And his, yeah. his saying is, any landing you can walk away from is a good one. That's funny. That's kind of how I... Crash through life. You know? Well, listen, my philosophy on life, I also learned from the DuckTales. <laughs> yeah. It's when Grandpa McDuck, was that Scrooge. his name? Scrooge McDuck yeah. would say, work smarter, not harder. Yeah. And so that was my whole philosophy behind managing my band. And I was having to go through third pe- third parties to deal with things that we were doing. And I'm like, why the fuck don't I just do it? And it takes me half the time and I can get it done quicker and cheaper. And like, I remember as a kid that saying, and I apply that to every business that I'm involved with. I don't think either one of us are diving into a, a big pile of money yet, though, right? No. We could no. just keep working on it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've gotten lucky a couple times, uh, but I, <laughs> I, you know, usually blow my wad trying to do the next thing. You know what I mean? So That's kind of how it goes. Um, I, uh, my company, we got a, a buyout option early from Anheuser-Busch. And I was smart enough to realize that I would just spend all the money on hookers and cocaine mm. and turn it down. Nice. So I'm still, you know, eating top ramen and living in a basement. Hey, but, man, you nothing know. wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. So nothing wrong with either of those options. I just, you know. So like Anheuser came to the table with an offer and you actually turned it down. Yeah. Well, That's I cool. counteroffered a okay. ridiculous amount right. of money. So they, hey, they'll man. regret not, they'll regret turning it down is what I told myself. So That's see. the game. Yeah. And I'm having the blast. So. How, so how'd you get into what you're doing? That's um, the genesis. What is the genesis of the so production company, drummer? Um, the drummer stuff, I've been playing drums since I was in fifth grade. You know, you uh, around here, you do that thing in fifth grade where they the, the, the high school band teacher will come in and give you an instrument and see which one you're good at. And I was Mr. George. To, yeah. Yeah. Mine was Mr. Yance. And he was like Hitler. Everyone was afraid of him. 
And Sounds I, like a fun band teacher. Uh, well, you know, he was a disciplinarian, but he told me to play the trumpet, and I was so afraid of him, <laughs> I didn't say I wanted to be a drummer. My, my, my dad's side of the family are all musicians, and there was always a drum set, so I wanted to play the drums, and so I was just going to play the trumpet, and I told my mom one day, well, I don't really want to play the trumpet. I want to be a drummer. And so she went into the school and she said, she said, tell, tell your teacher. I said, I don't want to talk to him. I was, he was so <laughs> frightening. And so she went in and told him, you know, my son wants to be a drummer. And so I started playing the drums. Um, and then, you know, you just do it. So I was nice to your mom. Yeah, it was nice of her. Yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. She's always <laughs> been very supportive. <laughs> Mostly through the failures, which are a lot. Uh, so, you know, you do it. I played in bands in high school and then went to college and played in some jazz bands. Uh, was a street musician in Chicago for a while. And that had to have been fun. Oh, dude, that was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I, I've heard, I mean, I watched what was it? I watched some TED Talk on this girl. I can't remember the name of the band she's in, but she was a street performer and she said it, it changed her life. Absolutely changed her life. Yeah. I mean, it did change my life in certain aspects. I mean, it didn't catapult me into any kind of musical superstardom, but it definitely influenced my education. At the time, I was going to undergraduate school at Ball State, so I would move somewhere different every summer, uh, you know, to go and go back to Muncie in the in the in the spring. I mean, Muncie is a horrible place to be, so I'd always try to leave. <laughs> uh, and I went up to Chicago one summer, and the the girl I w- went up there with. Moved up a week before to find a job in an apartment. And so when I went up there to meet her, I was walking her to work one morning and there was uh, these three people on the side of the street and they had badges on. And she goes, oh, that's a, there's a band over there. They play every morning. You should go check them out. So I'm like, okay. And I was just going to walk around the city and look for a job. And uh, as I'm walking over there to hear them play, they all start yelling at each other like screaming and like the drummer kicks over the drum set and starts, the girl was a bass player and starts yelling at her and she's yelling at him. And I'm like, Oh, well that's interesting. And the drummer just walks off. He was like this old long haired dude. And then the girl and the singer were, you know, I kind of heard him talking and I, they started configuring the drum set where he would stand there with the kick drum and kick it with his feet. And she would stand with the hi-hat and play bass and kick the hi-hat with her feet. So they were kind of doing a don't, don't, you know what I mean? While they're playing uh-huh. the instruments and they were totally amazing. And when the guy would sing, it was out of this world. But then when I would hear him talk, it was like Forrest Gump. He was kind of, you know what I mean? So I approached her and I said, Hey, you know, what are you guys doing out here? And she said, Oh, you know, I, I saw your badges. I didn't know if you were with an organization. Is this charity? I didn't know Chicago had street musicians. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. They don't have that here in Indy. And so she said, oh, no, we're street musicians. This is our license. You have to pay money to be a street performer. And that's kind of a tax you pay to the city. And you get to keep all your tips. And I, she goes, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I'm just out, you know, walking around looking for a job. She goes, you're not a drummer, are you? <laughs> and at the time, I'm studying jazz at Ball State. And I said, well, actually, yes, I am a drummer. And she goes, well, no sit down. Shit. Yeah. It was <laughs> solely, solely, totally serendipitous. I was just going to say that's complete yeah. serendipity. Yeah. Man. So they that's put crazy. the drum kit back together so I could play it. And then I played with them the rest of the day. It was just straight blues. They just played blues. And so they would call out songs. God, you know, that this, like you know so that. much fun. Oh, dude, it was amazing. And so at the end of it, this bucket was full of money. I mean, people just throw money in this bucket. At the end of it, they gave me some money for, you know, my share of, I saw you guys got to do that. You know, she's like, no, it's okay. She goes, well, you said you're looking for a job. You want to come play drums every day? I go, uh, fuck yeah, I do. <laughs> and so every day I would get up at six o'clock in the morning, meet them on a different corner someplace in Chicago, set up the drums and just play blues all day long. And at, 
in Chicago, there's Summerfest, there's Blues Fest, yep. there's jazz. So the, the the summer in Chicago is just musically crazy. And there's these groups. It's a of, fun place. Man. Oh, yeah. It's one of the best cities I've ever lived in. Mm-hmm. And so there's this group of transients that are all musicians playing blues that'll come and sit in with each other. And like in the summertime, they go to Chicago. In the, in the, in the wintertime, they go out to Venice Beach. They'll go down to Florida. And I got to play with some of like these legendary transient blues musicians that, I mean, totally informed. I had no idea there was such a thing. Dude, it's crazy. It's a whole <laughs> subculture of people that do this for a living. The two people that I played with named Josh and Anne Marie were homeless. They were living in a church. They had a truck and a little generator that they would store all their gear in and, you know, put the generator around the corner so their guitars could be amplified. And they just, they still do it to this day. I still go see them sometimes when I go up there. I'll find them. You know, just walking around and yeah, I mean, you, you can, there's Josh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. I was just there last weekend. Did you find him? Uh, no, it was too cold oh. to be playing, but I, I looked, you know, but I'm sure they're out in Florida or, and, and they've been to see the last time I actually talked to them, they were in Germany. That's someone, someone shit. in Chicago had seen them playing and hired them and flew them to Germany. And, you know, they would play wedding receptions and just random shit like them. Chicago is such a music town. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can get exposure like that doing that stuff. And actually now it's kind of more of a racket. Now there's people that run businesses and stuff doing it. So it's not as organic as it used to be. Now people are doing it as a business. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, people like me and sounds like you right. have yeah, like turned I it would, into a business. I would take my band and go play on the street in Chicago try to, trying to get something from it. When when they were doing it and when I was doing it, it was just for the love of doing it. You know what I mean? We were making money, but it wasn't... Everything shifts like that at yeah, some point. Yeah. It does. Mm-hmm. And then, I, you know, here in Indianapolis, I see that thing. You're not, you can't, you're not supposed to tip the musicians on the street. They have, we have like designated places you can put money. I didn't realize that. Yeah, there's little, there's a... They're like they look kind of like mailboxes, and it's you can put money in for the street musicians, and if they have their tax, they can go get their cut of the tips that day, that night. Really? So it's divided mm-hmm. equally among right. the street musicians. Yeah, that sounds terrible. It's I'm Did sure Bernie it's, Sanders set that up. Exactly. Yeah. Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> so. <laughs> We're not going down that one. Um, where, where did, uh, where, where did that take you? Uh, so at the it time, sounds like the most epic summer ever. Well, it was a great summer. I, and I was, I, guess I was doing undergraduate at Ball State then. So when I got back to school, uh, I was at the time studying jazz, and I had realized my whole goal was to be a, a music teacher. I taught drumline for a long time. Uh, you know, marching band drumline, and so I was going to go into college and get a music degree. Then I realized that there's really no money in that. And my roommate at the time was on the radio station at Ball State. And so he had me come in as his, his co-host was sick. So I went in and sat in with him. Had no idea we even had this facility at Ball State, this huge TCOM program. And I was like, it kind of opened my world up. And I was also playing in a rock band in college. And so I realized I could go into this program, learn audio video production, do our own music videos, do our own records. And so that's when I really kind of dug in in college and found what my niche would end up being. So I, I got a degree in audio production because I thought I wanted to be a music producer or music engineer rather. And after I graduated, moved to Austin and I had a, you know, the first band I recorded was Matthew McConaughey's college band. He was in a fraternity and had a yeah, band. Awesome. And so my first credit out of college was that. And so I spent two weeks with him and his band at this awesome recording studio doing their record. Um, and 
the guy that owned the studio, his name is Ray Benson. He's in a band called Asleep at the Wheel, which in Texas, they're like the Rolling Stones. I mean, they're the biggest. Of course, Texas could have that. Right. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're own, and Texas really is cool. its own country. Yeah, you know it I mean? is. In a lot of ways, man. In yeah. a lot of ways. And yeah. so working for him opened up a lot of doors. At the time, that's when Robert Rodriguez and Richard Linkletter were kind of starting their movie studio movement there. Spy Kids franchise was going on and they had just done Dazed and Confused. And so the movie industry there was really starting to boom. McConaughey was coming up. Sandra Bullock was coming up. Tommy Lee Jones had already been there. And so I got in with that crowd. started working in the movie business. And that was going really well. Um, But it's like you spend so much of your time hustling other people's projects when you're around people like that. The things that you're passionate about kind of fall to the wayside and I realized I was spending so much time working on other people's stuff which was a great learning experience great opportunities it's the best place to make mistakes exactly it really is I I was very fortunate I got to learn a lot on other people's times which is yeah no I think that's the way to do it but I got to a point where it was continue to do that and be kind of a lifetime PA you know what I mean Mm -hmm. or go try and start to do my own thing so I decided on a win, I actually had just gotten a call to come work on that movie Alamo that had like Billy Bob Thornton and it was a huge Alamo movie in Texas. And I turned that down and came home to go to graduate school and work on my own project. So I started, once I got back here, just started researching huge Indiana projects that I think could get some traction and started going to local business owners, you know, prominent people in the community and just, you know, pitching ideas, hearing what they had to say. And I had, I had settled on two ideas. One was this movie about the first Indianapolis 500. Um, and gosh, what was the other one I was going to do? Um, I don't remember. But as I started researching that project, oh, it was The Massacre at Fall Creek. There's a, a, a best-selling book called The Massacre at Fall Creek, which is a true story about Pendleton, Indiana. Mm-hmm. involved the Connor family. It was the first time in American history that white people were hung or tried, convicted, and hung for killing Indians. And like, there's this really creepy monument in the Pendleton Park etched on a huge rock under an oak tree that says, like, in 1827, nine white men were hung here for killing Indians. And so you're not sure if that's saying that they're upset about it or if it's a warning, we're tired of this kind of behavior, you know, grow up. So there was that one and there was the race one. And just talking to people, uh, it seemed there was more excitement about the race thing. So That makes a lot of sense. Right. And out of Indiana came the movies Hoosiers and Rudy. So I got a hold of the screenwriter for those two movies and pitched him my idea. And he was like, I love it. Let's figure it out. So I was able to come back and raise money from some local business people here to get the development started. And so he wrote the script for the film. The um, 500? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me see if I can read your mind does it start with the records burning yeah it does uh, yeah. how do you know yeah. that did I, what oh my gosh how funny. did i know that did i tell you that no you didn't tell me that how the fuck do you know that i'm psychic <laughs> we know people i just i just oh. put it together oh okay yeah yeah you know well, that's funny 
Uh, but yes, it does. I'll, I'll bring you a copy of the script if you want to read it. It's pretty I good. I'd love to read it. Yeah, it sounds awesome. Yeah. I've heard all about it. Okay. Well, it's never going to get made, so... Why not? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know. It's, it's a work in progress. Apparently, it takes a long time. This year being the 100th anniversary. <laughs> me, yeah, right? <laughs> Maybe it'll go, but we'll see. Um, but that's gone through a bunch of different iterations. Uh, you know, it's uh, now in development as a television show. The guy who started it all had a pretty amazing life. So now it's being written as a three or four season television series. Um, one about the race, one about the building of Miami Beach, one about the building of the national highway system and working with, you know, battling the mafia and things like that. That's awesome. And are you involved with that? Yeah. That's I mean, fantastic. to the extent that, you know, what's being, we're pitching it around the studio system to see if we can get some traction. Uh, we, we were getting real close, but they, uh, HBO passed for the Wright Brothers story. So they're doing that one instead. How so. many times can that be done? I know, right? I, I just know. I just watched a bunch of stuff on it. I don't yeah. know. I the only thing that's ever been done about Carl <laughs> Fisher was a PBS documentary, which was so boring. I think it put a bad taste in people's mouths. And, you know, when you're outside of Indiana and you're pitching stories that have to do with race cars, people tune out because they don't think race car movies do well at the box office. But this isn't necessarily... That's not true. Days of Thunder? Right. Talladega Nights? Yeah. Right. There's another one that I just saw that was good. <laughs> well, the but, guy that gets burned, what is that one? Rush or whatever? Right, but it did box office numbers were horrible on that. Oh, were they? Yeah, it was a, that was a Ron Howard movie. That See, I he, love race cars, so I'm biased. Well, here's yeah. the thing. is Ron Howard had that film and couldn't get it financed through the studio system, so he had to do it privately. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, if Ron Howard can't get a fucking race car movie made, what the fuck am I trying to do? <laughs> You know what I mean? And unfortunately, that was a really good movie, but they just didn't have the marketing budget to propel it past what it did. You know what I mean? That's really just the sad part about this business and that particular film. And so when I was taking meetings after that film, that's the first thing people would say to me was, well, Rush didn't do any numbers. And I'm like, well, fine. But this movie, it does have race cars in it, but it's not a race film. I say it's, you know, it's not a race film like Hoosiers wasn't a basketball film. There's basketball in that movie, but that's, Solid not a, point. that's not a basketball film. And it's the same writer, so it's the same spirit. It's the same kind of thing. But if you're not from Indiana, you just don't give a shit. What's the title or the working title? For the show or the movie? Either. Well, the movie is called 500. The show is called Wheelman. Um, it starts with a, there was a club in Indiana called the Zigzag Club, which was a bicycle club that Carl Fisher and a couple other business guys started, which is how the whole car industry started here. You know, he started as a bicycle shop owner and then eventually brought cars into the city. And then, you know, we're, we're doing these races. So Wheelman kind of goes to speak to the bicycle part, the car part. Uh, it's in, it, he was a boat racer too. So, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. He was a bootlegger. He I did all kinds of shit. I would, I would love it. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody would. Yeah. You got thirty million dollars? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> well, let's revisit this podcast when you're successful in about five years. Let's right. make that yeah. <laughs> exactly. So awesome. So um, you've also done a TED talk, right? Uh, no, I have not. Oh, um, bit of misinformation. Lindsay like, did the TED talk. <laughs> yeah. So that's close. I have done several talks. None of them have been TED talks. Uh, it's it's mostly about um, projects I've already finished are like speaking panels. Uh, I did PopCon a couple times. Um, yeah. Very cool. So <clears throat> you were, so you, we, we were in Chicago, we're gallivanting around LA mm -hmm. and then, and then now where are you? 
now I'm between here in LA mostly. Um, I'm doing a lot of client work, so that kind of takes me wherever. I just got back from Mexico. Nice. And, what was going on in Mexico? Uh, it was a spot for a bank. They were launching an app. <laughs> so Not what I was expecting. Yeah, I, was, no, that's, I had cartel stuff going on yeah. in my mind. I'm like... Just just commercial work. Yeah. Nice. Boring stock stuff. But it pays the bills or affords me the luxury of getting turned down in Hollywood. <laughs> so you've mentioned more than once uh, epic failures. Oh, gosh, yeah. Let's hear about it. Let's Ten see. of them. <laughs> my band, my movie projects, my TV projects, my personal life. No, I'm just kidding. No, you're not. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> It's funny how you look at your life and how other people look at your life. Mm-hmm. You know, people always say, I mean, just the fact that I'm invited on this podcast, I don't, I don't know. I mean, listen, I'm honored and I appreciate it, but it's like, I don't have anything real successful to talk about. Perfect. Well, I mean, I think there's something to be said about not giving up maybe, you know? So, I, you know, life is short. So to me, it's just about finding something you're passionate about. And I guess even if you don't succeed at it, at least you're having fun trying. But see, you That's, say you're not successful at anything, you know, and you make it sound like there's nothing really happening. However, not everybody can say, especially in bands, their bands are dime a dozen, and a lot of them are good bands, they just don't go anywhere. How many can say they've traveled the world, well, at least the U.S., with uh, Saving Able? That's a, true. A, you know, nationally touring. Yeah. I, look, I don't take anything for granted. Yeah, you so worked with Matthew McConaughey. That's pretty Yeah, awesome. I mean, I don't take any of that for granted. I guess everything in life is relative. And so perspective-wise, do I feel like I'm a success? Oh, we can get super philosophical. It's one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Two more beers and I'm yeah. there. Go ahead. Catch up, man. <laughs> the guest usually talks and I just sit here and get trashed because they're busy talking. <laughs> That's how we end up with those awesome intros. Mm, maybe I should have brought some whiskey. Yeah. Or ho- hookers and cocaine. Well there for oh, or no, that's great. I mean, yeah. It's funny because the I'm Carl... I'm good with all the above. <laughs> the, Carl, the Carl Doniger show that uh, that is already out there, um, we talked about filling whiskey through the, uh, through through the, the bottom. uh, bottoms oh, up. Wow. We made one. We made one for Jim Beam. Um, they never aired that episode of Man Caves because apparently it's illegal to fill a glass of whiskey. Really? Yeah. Well, anywhere. You go to a bar, you have to have a shot, right? Yeah. So there's laws against even showing it on TV and stuff. Well, guess what? There's no law against the podcast showing it. We should do it. <laughs> Glass of whiskey. We've taken the 9% uh, mistake and we've just escalated it. Just I'm all right with on. that. <laughs> Man Caves was... Who was that? Was it not... It wasn't Jimmy Kimmel. No, not No, Jimmy. it's um, Jason... Uh, Brad. That cannot be the end of it. Uh-oh. We just got that, it feels like. Holy shit, we drank more of that than I thought we did. (sighs) Is this the same? It's not the same beer, right? No. This is the third fucking time. (laughs) That's why I gotta get the... uh, I gotta get three. Never mind the two... Forget, I mean, you can bring in the uh, the extra kegerator, but I need to get another one so that we've got a backup to the backup. This is the worst thing ever. The The only criticism I've gotten about the show is that we've ran out of beer on it. <laughs> <laughs> Three times now. Now, is that because you're in here drinking not during the show? It's got to be. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least you're aware. Well, it's, it's we're drinking during the show. We're drinking not during. The, I mean, the, the after show has some great stuff that I, 
usually try to keep recording on until guests <laughs> tell me to unplug the microphones, yeah. which we've had done before. But uh, yeah, we you know we get some great stuff after the show's technically over. Spoils of running your own business. What? Oh, getting drunk while you're working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do that a lot. My <laughs> business it's a it's a real hazard in the <laughs> industry I work in. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, back on track, uh, which is usually not is my job. One? Yeah, I want to hear about some of your fuck ups. Well, you just went real broad with it. I mean, specifically, see fuck ups. Let me think. Well, I What's mean, your biggest mistake. I don't think I'm good at saying no to some or letting things go. Yeah. Um. There's lots of projects and even things with my band that I probably hold on to for too long or don't make decisions quick enough on because i'm you know dwelling on stuff probably probably the biggest hurdle i have is i'm also a writer so i write screenplays and Mm -hmm. stuff like that is sitting down and doing it and then getting it to a point where i feel like it's finished and i can go do it um as far as mistakes i've made in business stuff you have a hard time with the the keep it simple stupid yeah well Yeah, in the creative part, absolutely. Mm-hmm. In the production part, I'm very pragmatic. So as far as that goes, to me, that's the easy stuff. The creative stuff is what's hard. I always tell people I'm a production guy, not a creative guy. I've ventured in the creative world just because it's hard to filter through everybody else's creative crap, you know, to find mm-hmm. something that you want to do. And so I've just started kind of doing it on my own. Um, but I find that, you know, I spend too much time developing as opposed to doing that's probably my biggest issue you know i got 10 things right now i could probably go make and get money for but i just don't feel like they're to the point that's my hardest part too like i i have a million bajillion things that i want to do all the time Mm -hmm. and if i don't focus on one of them none of them are going to get done (coughs) yeah Mm -hmm. i can really relate with that and it's that's actually a really uh, good thing for the show too i mean uh, so that's a that's a normal entrepreneurial pitfall yeah is to have too many things you're trying to accomplish all at once yeah yeah i have a guy that's kind of a that i you know we partner in a lot of stuff together and you know he's always saying that just you know just go do it but i find that if i take that approach that it always comes out kind of subpar and i regret doing it so i'd rather just take a little more time and perfect an idea before i execute an idea and is that bad? I don't know. It might be. I thought you were just saying that was the problem. No, it, that I take too much time is the problem because then I don't have enough, you know, like this body of work I could have by now is a quarter of what it should be probably. And all the stuff I probably would have learned had I just done it as opposed to dwell on it. You yeah, know what I mean? I get that. I'd probably have a lot more experience and, you know. What is that? Uh, General Lee's statement of a uh, plan violently executed today is better than a right yeah the perfect plan tomorrow right yeah an imperfect plan violently executed yeah. today is a yeah yeah anyway there's a balance there you know you gotta yeah i'm trying to find it <laughs> i'm sure it exists Dude, the madness of life my friend it's I a journey so yeah but yeah. again you know that that's actually you're right it is a and journey. i mean you say that and i think i think the same way the exact same way like there's so much shit that i could have done and mm-hmm. do but then i look back on it and like when yeah i'm busy doing all this other shit right and when you compare or when we compare ourselves or when someone of our mindset um compares ourselves to you know the person that just goes to their nine to five you know what's their portfolio of work? yeah man you does the I mean? thought of a nine to five job horrify you i 
you know, it makes me want to shoot myself. Yeah. And the fact that there's so many people that like I shot of, I've shot a number of car commercials and we shoot them in factories where cars are made Mm -hmm. and we go in there during third shift and it's just full of people that do this all day. Bless their hearts, man. Because I employ a lot of those people. Right. And they love it. And that's their job. Right. And that's what they do. Mm-hmm. And they want to do that. Yeah. And they don't want to do anything else. And then they want to go home. And they right. want to watch the commercial you just made. But there's a difference between the two. I mean, I knew early on my dad was one of those people at Chrysler. He That was what he did. He didn't do it because he loved it. He didn't do it because he was excited to go to work. He did it because it paid a damn good amount of money at the time. And I looked at it and I remember my mom kept constantly saying, uh, especially during high school or during the summer breaks, you need to get a job there. And I was the selfish one that was like, no, I'm not going to get a job there because I've seen what happens. <laughs> Everybody that in the city that gets a job there stays, stays there, there. Yeah. and they never get out because they start making a shitload of money up front and they never get a chance to get past that golden handcuffs, I guess. You can't yeah. you know, move on from that. And I just decided early on that if I did that, I would stay. And if I pursued my passions, I would make shit for money at first. But I would be, you know, I would enjoy it a lot more. I meet so many people that are super talented and they're salary locked. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you come work for me. And I'm like, well, what are you going to pay me? I'm like, 50000 Like, well, I make eighty. We're at my job now. I'm like, I, well, I can't pay you eighty, but I promise you'll love every single day mm-hmm. that you work for me. Do you love your job now? No, I hate it. I hate it. I'm going to work every day. I'm like, what the fuck? I mean, what is that other extra money? What does that do for you? That sounds right. miserable. Yeah. I would rather, I mean, I would, uh, it's just not worth it. Yeah. Have one less car. You'll be much happier. Yeah. Or a smaller house. It's amazing how quickly you acclimate to how much Mm -hmm. or little you make and are still just completely content. Like when I was in Africa on, on that trip, there were some really happy people living in sheds. Yeah. You know, I mean, that might be an extreme example, (laughs) but yeah, you know, there are, and there are studies that show that people that. It doesn't money that has money has absolutely no bearing on happiness is all I'm trying to say. I was going to say, I think if I remember correctly, uh, a quote was um, having money when you're miserable is not going to change the fact that you're miserable. However, if you're already content having money on top of that, you know, it's going to probably improve life a little bit because you don't have to worry about bills as much. You don't. But if you're already not liking life and you're not loving it, then extra money is not going to fix it. No, absolutely not. Unless you're going to start a prank war with Mark Cuban, because that sounds fun. I know plenty of rich, miserable people. Yeah. Plenty of them. <laughs> yeah. I think they're all in the movie business. <laughs> I know one guy who makes 50... I mean, he, he has a trust. It's $50,000 a month. He saves none of it. And he just parties every day of his life. And he's the most miserable human being on the planet. I mean, I don't know how you get in that headspace. I don't know. But I, I always have this sort of existential argument with myself. You know, is it better to love something so much and keep failing at it or to just not have any fucking clue what you ever want to do and like work in a factory and because you don't have that drive, you're not frustrated by it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I I, I, I don't know. Is that you think that's a you think that's um, genetics over I don't know. Or nurture over nature or nature over idea. nurture. Because my dad, I mean, Brad's dad provided a nice, stable place for him to grow up via one of those jobs. So he could defect and, you know, be a complete asshole and have a stupid podcast show. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and my dad, on the other hand, 
complete maniac, always been in business for himself, you know, you know, drunk at the bars on the weekend. He's a complete nut, always, you know, entrepreneurial, crazy asshole. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Who knows, man? <laughs> I think about the people in my family and I, I don't know that there's, I mean, there are, I have a lot of artists, musicians and painters and writers in my family, but they all have jobs and they all, they've never really, no one's ever really taken that leap to, you know, to make it their life. So, well, what drove you to do it? I mean, it is, I, and I, I don't, is that, that's not unusual, right? I mean, I don't think enough. so. No, I mean, like I said before, when I see, when I think about those people in those factories, I'm not knocking it. I'm not thinking it's bad, but I could never. No, you're just personally, personally relating it. yourself I, to the thing. Why, I, why is that? Either. I have no fucking idea. Yeah. But the thought of that horrifies me. You know, I mean, sitting in a, in a cubicle all day long, not doing anything that you care about. I would just, I it's just not. I'm not programmed that way. How that happened, I don't know. But it's just, it's just, it is what it is. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, it takes it takes all kinds. I mean, I couldn't do what I do if I didn't if those people didn't exist. True. Yeah. You know, and you couldn't do what you do if those people didn't exist. You wouldn't have things to shoot commercials for. Right. Yeah, that's true. Or that particular commercial. Mm-hmm. So, what's the coolest set you've been on? <clears throat> the coolest set I've been on. I think just bouncing it around. Uh, I mean, if you want to hear about something famous that you would have heard of, it's probably not the answer I'm no, going to give you. No, I don't give a shit. I think the coolest set I've ever been on was uh, a film called Saving Star Wars that I made because it was the first movie I ever got to make that was my set. That's awesome. That I got to control and do everything for. And it was just amazing to see all these moving parts that you know you would work so hard to put together. So in that sense, that's been my favorite set. It's not, certainly not been the biggest, most glamorous set I've been on. That'd probably be... Probably one of the Spy Kids movies or something like that, you know, where there's just famous people everywhere, which was cool for a young kid to see how it works in a studio environment. See, the set design would have been cooler for me than the famous people. Yeah, but that one was all green screen, so there was was no real set design to it. It was just interesting seeing those, getting to meet those people. Um, Yeah. My, My biggest regret is I would have liked to work on Alamo because... The set design and all that, all that practical stuff would have been really cool to be around. Um, and I, I say regret in that I don't regret not working on it, but you know, I could have waited a year, experienced that, and then gone on to do what I was doing. So I don't know if at the time it was the best decision, but you know. What'd you, what'd you pick over it? Coming back to grad school. Wow. Damn school. Yeah. Messing shit up. Yeah, man. We're so we're so anti-school on this show. It's like, I'm a college dropout, community college dropout. Yeah, yeah. I'm a step up. I'm at least a actual college dropout. Yeah. Well, I loved college. To me, college is what informed my entire life. I, I college college is when I had my aha moment in life, and so I was that guy that did everything in college. We had, you know, it was TCOM at Ball State, so I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's one of the nicest facilities in the country. And David Letterman came yeah, from there, and right? Has yeah. since put a lot of money into the place. The year after I graduated, by the way, <laughs> totally sucked. But I've gone on to since tour the place now, and it's a hundred times what it was when I was there. But we had TV studios, recording studios. I mean, at one point in time, I was in the jazz band. I had three television shows that were my own. I was writing for the Daily News at school, and people would all they did all day long was complain about being in school. And I'm like, are you guys crazy? You get to do anything yeah, school, that you want to do. School's awesome. I loved it. It was the most amazing the thing ever. The problem is I had to pay for it. Yeah, that is a problem. 
Well, and and <laughs> well, Josh and I both kind of had the same experience, though. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know from the beginning part, but school is like you said, Justin. It, it was what defined me. It's what I, I didn't go into the radio field or the TV field until I uh, started at the radio station at at college. If it weren't for that moment, I would not be here putting podcasts together today, which I think is actually kind of a step down now. But whatever. <laughs> <was> um, <laughs> but what I'm saying is, I wouldn't huh? have gotten to work for a nationally syndicated radio show. I wouldn't have been, you know able to do the things that I was able to do, the concerts that I was able to see, the people I was able to meet if I hadn't gone to college. However, I got the internship at a uh, at a really big radio station. And from that point on, uh, decided, what's the point of going back to school? And I think that's where Josh and I both kind of had that moment of, we're working in the field, we're, we're witnessing and doing more now than we are actually in school. Mm-hmm. I'm learning more from what I'm actually doing at the job why continue? Yeah. So it helped me get to where I was at, but as soon as it got me to a certain point, I didn't need it anymore. Yeah, you used it for what it was for. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not saying school is bad. I'm just right. saying that well, so you you're, don't necessarily it's, have to It's finish. there for learning, right? Yeah. The, the piece of paper doesn't mean shit. No. Well, that's why film school is always... I always like to talk to guys that went to f- actual film school because half of them had the same experience you did and half of them quit or you know hated it or whatever, but you know either they didn't get anything out of it or it gave them everything that they think they ever had. So, you know, it is what it is. I have to say, though, the highlight of my career so far is finishing a beer, <laughs> seeing my band's logo in the bottom <laughs> of the glass. That's pretty gnarly. Boom. I like that. That's one of the highlights of my career. <laughs> For that to be the highlight right, of your yeah, career. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's quite an adventure. I, uh, I never thought in a million years filling beers through the bottom, or that to begin with, and then where it would take take me it's pretty cool i get to go gallivant all over the planet drunk pretty much (laughs) how often do the people i i the only other time i've seen this in actual service was at the state fair yeah maybe yep and there was a room where they were doing the wine and the beer and every time i swear every time i would turn around there would be some asshole poke the bottom poking the bottom and the beer would just all fall out human curiosity man everybody's got to stick their finger in the bottom at least once yeah i wouldn't (laughs) i just saw how it worked (laughs) (laughs) she he i mean whatever or you walk around and see the guys that had the big wet stains on their pants and know that they were the guys that did it (laughs) i like the so we get complaint emails every once in a while like i poked the bottom of my cup or my cup started leaking and i'll I'll respond with you poked it right and they're like yeah i I did i'm like what did you know what's gonna happen when you poked it And they're like well yeah i had a pretty good idea (laughs) so so don't do that okay well thanks for wasting my time with that email (laughs) exactly i love complaint emails they're one of my most favorite things to answer ever yeah it's just it's fun to uh Flip them around, you know? No. Be really nice, kind of kill them with kindness. In a, in That's a, actually in a funny. Way. Lindsay, the girl that plays bass and sings for our band, runs so she has her social media company. And uh-huh. so she does all the Crackers Comedy Club stuff, and she has to answer all of the complaint emails and posts and stuff that they get. Oh, God, it's so, got to be so much fun. Oh, she'll read them to me because, like, they'll happen a lot at night while people are there drunk. You know what I mean? And uh-huh. she'll get these things and be like, oh, geez, and she'll read it to me while we're out, and she'll talk about how she's going to respond to it. And I'm like, Oh my God, like I would be so mean, but she's so nice. And like, you know what I mean? Political about it. I don't know how she does it. I would just be like, you know, they, they complain about the dumbest shit. 
You know what I mean? It's yeah. So I don't know how you do it. I don't know about the. I mean, the people that complain. There's like this set of people that complain. You could almost like have. I could take. I wish they could send in their pictures and I could put them up and you'd be like, you could start identifying somebody by looking at them. Like you're a complainer. Yeah. You're gonna write a complaint email, aren't you? Because uh-huh. <laughs> they they have a profile. Sure. Yeah. You know, like I know a lady. That, <laughs> never mind. Well, <laughs> no. <laughs> it sounds like there's a story there. I know we've pissed everybody else off on this show. Why? Why stop now? <laughs> well, I was just saying that it, uh, <laughs> it isn't even that bad. I guess I, I I know a girl that worked at a prison, and she said you could start to visually identify child molesters because they all had this certain look. She didn't know how to explain it, but <laughs> you could visually profile one. Interesting. She'd been there for years and years and years yeah. and years and years. So I'm not saying that you can. <laughs> Did but she describe I'm what they looked like? She thought she could. No, you can't describe it. It's like oh. a, something you just pick up on. Oh, gotcha. Well, yeah. I was gonna say, in in that regard, if you if you're around a situation <laughs> enough and you get to know these people enough, it may not be the look. It's probably just the feeling you get yeah, with the, the person. Because you know, I, there's, you know, I believe there's a sixth or seventh sense that people have. So right. yeah, maybe that's totally. Well, and I'm yeah. guessing that. Uh, you get a lot of, you know, <laughs> wow, this is going down a really bad That's hole. why I didn't want to say <laughs> this is a strange, no. But you, but you get a lot child of those. Child are pretty predatorial, so you probably pick up on that pretty easily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're a child, yeah. Sure. <laughs> they got the bag of candy, they drove up in a van. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's pretty easy to tell. They've got the van down by the river. <laughs> Hi, Chris. <laughs> Go family guy routes. Oh, man. All right. Super off track. Help, Brad. <laughs> I think I per- perpetrated that one. Yeah, I don't. you did. You totally did that. How often do you talk about this thing on your show? Uh, you know, not that much. How did I mean? How did you even get that idea? Uh, I saw it in a daydream. Uh, I saw it in a daydream, and you know, I'd been drinking a few margaritas and at my dad's birthday party, and he said, "Hey, uh, yeah, that's that's a cool idea, but if it could be done, somebody probably would already come up with it, don't you think, or something like that." He hates the way I describe it every time. But that's encouraging. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Thanks, Dad. That's why he hates it. That's why he hates it. <laughs> and then I, I just I took it as a personal challenge, and you know, uh, two days later, I had the idea for the name, the Bottoms of Beer Dispenser. I called mm-hmm. him up and said, "Hey, Dad, I got the I got the name. It's a perfect name, Bottoms of Beer Dispenser." He's like, "That's a hell of a name, son." But have you figured it out? <laughs> no. Fuck you. <laughs> I hang up the phone two two more days later. Hey, I figured it out. I made it work. Come check it out. So, and. uh the rest is an eight-year history of trials and tribulations, blood, sweat, tears, literally. And uh, now I'm sitting here with you having a beer. Well, I've got a couple pragmatic questions. About sure. Yes, Only because yeah. I've got some ideas about products. Yeah, let's talk about products. I've never done ideas. it because I figure I'll have to sell a complete industry and they have to completely redo what they're already doing. So how did you... Yeah, tell con- me about how it. How did yeah. you convince people to... to like how do you get a place to revamp their entire infrastructure to how to pour a beer? So you don't. Um, that's just the thing. So this is what would be defined as a disruptive technology, something right. that is exactly that, something that you have to get the underlying assumptions of the industry changed in order for them to adopt the newer, better way. Right. And it's usually an extremely better way. It's not just an incremental improvement. It's mm-hmm. a fundamental shift in the way it's done. Um, <clears throat> and the short answer is you focus on other visionary type people so you find the people that are the visionary types that are like hey that's a great idea um i'd love that let's try it let's do it um and then also early adopters kind of fall into that same category uh the problem with these people is that pragmatic 
um, operators and pragmatic purchasers don't value these people's opinion uh, because early adopters and visionaries are just as quick to try something as they are to abandon an idea that didn't work and move on to the next best thing because they're trying to make a big leap. Mm -hmm. Um, And that creates what's called the chasm. Um, It's a flat spot between early market or uh, I'm sorry, um, visionaries, early adopters and early market. And that's where usually things fail. So you have to focus on the visionaries, early adopters with a light touch on the pragmatic buyers. And once you start getting pragmatic buyers to buy, buy into your idea, mm-hmm. then hopefully the mass market takes off and then you make it through the bell curve all the way out to the laggards, which are the people that still use rotary phones right? and won't buy another phone until the rotary phone breaks. And so what's the idea behind why this is better? Um, so it's, it's, it's hands free. Um, there is, if Brad wouldn't have turned up the kegerator, there would be no Oops. waste. <laughs> so hands-free, no waste. It's cool as hell. It, and really when I had the idea, I just thought it would look really cool because yeah. I fancy myself an artist more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought it would look really cool. Um, it does look really cool. And it also has all these collateral benefits of being hands-free, no waste. And then lastly, your band logo in the bottom of the cup mm-hmm. is a piece that can be either used to promote the restaurant that it's in or be sold as an ad space so Mm -hmm. you're not paying for your glasses or you make money on it before you even sell a beer um or you could drive other food sales because you know influence people when they're most influenceable at the bottom of the beer right yeah that's when i do dumb shit yeah no it's like that advertising in the urinal thing yeah no it's great you know pre-urinal right like you could we could marry that up sure yeah here and then go go to the (laughs) urinal and i like the um have you seen the little soccer games that are in the urinals? Mm-mm. It's really cool. It's just a little ball that you got to fucking try to piss at. Pee on it? The goal. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, you need to invent something like that for girls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm in. Right? Where they stand there. <laughs> Let's just do a lot of research. And pee at it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's good. Next show. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's just start today. I'm done. <laughs> So, um, you have an idea? Well, I'm sure you don't want to talk about it. Well, no, yeah, I can talk about it. I mean, so I mean, it's just like two dumb things that I've always that have always bothered me. And it seems the same kind of thing where you try to convince people. And a couple of meetings I have had about it, um, I'm totally turned down because they're they have to spend ten cents per container over a million containers a day ends up equaling this. It's not worth them to redo their factory. So I, you know what, what I've always hated is I like pickles and I got to either dirty a fork to get a pickle out or an olive or whatever. You need to stick your fingers in a jar to get shit out. I use out. chopsticks. It's, yeah, whatever. You got to use something. Then yeah. you got to clean the chopsticks, whatever, or mayonnaise or, or, condiments that you have to dirty a butter knife to use or peanut butter or jelly they should just have a fucking something on the lid that when you pop the lid off you can use that as the spreader and then with the pickle jar it's just got a little thing you pull up and the fucking pickles come out you can grab one and it goes back down in that's a great idea right but it's really great i know but peep the i know the the, the food (laughs) manufacturers of course it's a great idea yeah the food manufacturers don't want to spend that extra 10 cents because of their bottom line goes up so much or whatever and then they have to redo how the shit's packaged and so trying to convince people that 
you know, if 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 one well, you're talking about redoing everything. I mean, they're redoing their production lines, right? They're exactly. redoing all kinds of shit. Yeah, yeah, that's a tough one to sell. Right, and so it's like that's been the biggest. But I think it'd be a great idea, and it'd be a good marketing tool if you're the only pickle company that's you know you don't you know what I'm saying. But is it really though redoing everything? I mean, it is in 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 a re, in a way, but they do that all the time anyway. They used to have the uh, what was it, the the mustard bottles where you actually had to twist the cap, you know, and then kind of squirt it from that area and then twist the thing back down. Now it all stands on its head so that you don't have to worry so about those that. those projects that you that we see and we uh-huh. think are new, those have been in development for 10 years. And they've gone through millions of dollars worth of um, research with, you know, with customers to see if people would actually like it. Because that's how big companies spend their money. They don't... Right. It, like, so even if somebody did pick up your idea... It would be 10 years later before right. Vlasic implemented it because mm-hmm. they would need to make sure that everything was perfect because they don't take those risks. So what you would do, what you would need to do is find a pickle company like maybe Bubby's, which makes a great pickle that is small, and you would get them to buy the idea or buy into the idea. And I, I, I was going to go down that route, but the problem is if I do that, there's no real big payday at the end of the day. If you sell it to someone like Vlasic, I mean, if you sell it to Buddies or whoever it is, Bubbies. they they might license it. Their sauerkraut is also delicious for a hundred bucks a year. But if I'm, you know, <laughs> if I'm just this isn't something that I'm trying to birth. You know what I mean? And hold on to for the long run. Well, then, <laughs> then you just abandon it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that's yeah. you know, I've got so many things like that that just. Well, how about this? We'll just I'm going to cross that one off the list for you. <laughs> I now would, you don't have to do that one. <laughs> so you can move gone. on to the next project. Right. Which is what I've done. <laughs> yeah. You asked, so I'm telling you. <laughs> I've actually, one of the biggest things I'm working on right now is a, an app yeah. that can revolutionize. I like revolutionize. This. I, I, I like where this is going. The yep. service industry, mm-hmm. much like Uber Cab did for... The taxi cab business. Which is great. Uber's a fantastic I love service. Uber. I think yeah. it's the best idea ever. I have something. It has nothing to do with vehicles, but it, it's more about the food service industry that I'm working on. And I'm, uh, I've got the app developed. Um, I'm trying to get in bed with Open Table, And it will totally change dining experiences for the better. I was a bartender and waiter for a long time. And... You know, this thing, if it goes... Was that amazing. in L.A.? No, it was in Chicago. It Damn was here it. in Indianapolis. It was in Muncie. Not in L.A. But I got the idea in L.A. <laughs> God, I want to tell you about it, but... No, you don't. You can't. don't. You can tell me off. You can tell me off air. I can tell you off air. But it's a really cool, interesting... And the story about how it came about is really good. So hopefully one day we'll come back can and Can you tell me the story it. about how it came about without telling me the idea? No. Damn it. This will be the follow-up episode here. <laughs> yeah. Once he when he comes back, right. and he has his Scrooge McDuck. By then, I won't money. have time for you guys. <laughs> Your then, little pissant peon. Right, yeah. Then he'll come back and be like, "So remember when I talked about having no successes, even though I was <laughs> touring with Saving Abel and met Matthew McConaughey and all this stuff? Now I'm a fucking successful." So, yeah. And know. then and then we'll do another follow-up episode where he's living in the street playing right. music again exactly. because he nice. spent all that money on cocaine and hookers, right. uh-huh. <laughs> like. Anybody would. Right. <laughs> Except Mark Cuban, apparently. And actually, I've got a rejection letter from Mark Cuban that I am going to frame one day, which is kind was of Was it fun. for the pickle idea? No, it was, it, was, it was a film. 
there's a whole backstory behind a film project and someone I was doing a film with and they were college buddies and they hated each other. And he actually had said yes and then found out who the writer was and then said no. Because there was oh. a girl involved. Was this back when he was trying to push the HD, HD net and stuff? So he was really, really big into the film? Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That can happen. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to frame that sucker one day. If I ever actually get that particular project made. What's the project? Uh, that one I can't talk about yet. Oh, okay. Nice. Man, Frame it secrets. anyway, even if you don't get the, the dark night over here. <laughs> yeah. It's the next Batman. Well, he gave us one. I mean, we got, you know, yeah, we pic- can now go steal the uh, pickle <laughs> idea. No, we can't. I know how hard that would be. I want nothing to do <laughs> right? with it. No one does. Yeah. <laughs> even the pickle manufacturers. <laughs> no, because it had too much to the cost of manufacturing. They're really counting pennies. I mean, it's, but, I mean, they've got it down. If you try to get an olive out of a jar, what well, I hate we, the most is not my fingers. It's everybody else's fingers I know have been in the jar. Right. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean, but technically the olive juice would kill those germs. Yeah, but it's just the thought. Well, that and, you know, <laughs> dirtying up a single fork seems to be an okay thing to do, you know? Nah, I just hate doing dishes. <laughs> that goes, what was it? We were I'll talking about the, uh, the cereal, uh, millennials and cereal. Did you hear that story? What? No. All right, so basically, millennial. <laughs> there was a news report, and I oh, forget yeah, where yeah, it's from. Yeah, it takes too long to make cereal, so they're not eating cereal. Millennials don't eat cereal because it takes oh too long to clean up. God. Well, I was that guy in college. All my roommates hated me because at one point I had taken all the dishes out of the house and locked them in the garage, except for one thing for each person, because they just would never clean the goddamn dishes. And That's I a had brilliant idea. I just locked all the. And they're like, well, what if we have guests? And I had opened the cabinet and bought a bunch of red Solo cups and like plastic shit. If you have guests, there's some plastic shit right there. Tell them to throw it away when they're done. That's with a it. great idea. I hung a so I got tired of the exact same thing at the office, and I hung a sign over the sink that said, "If you leave a dish in the sink, I'm throwing the fucking thing away." Right. Yeah. And I just started throwing dishes away. Guess what? We didn't have any fucking dishes. <laughs> right. Because I threw them all away. People people think leaving a dish in the sink is like pr- no, the sink is not storage. It's no. to clean the fucking dishes. So do it or don't use any. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I hate it. I couldn't agree more. And I, 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 I come from that. I just want to switch to paper plates. Right. Which is also has its issues. What? But I hate doing What are dishes. the issues with paper plates? Well, you know, in the environment oh, fuck and all you. that shit. You know. <laughs> they're, they're paper. <laughs> <laughs> and since they're biodegradable, yeah. Yeah, they're... What? Well, I mean, but the, but the shit still goes into a landfill and, you know. Yeah, and it makes valuable methane gas that we use to power our homes and heat our houses. Yeah, that's true. All right, then. Paper it is. <laughs> See? I can't argue with that. <laughs> and will not even attempt to. The, uh, the, the environmental stuff is, you can, it's so arbitrary. Like, you can argue it every which way. Yeah. I mean... Your argument's valued, valid. My argument's valid. Um, what's really great is we. So I deal with it on a regular basis because I make a plastic disposable cup. Mm-hmm. So we get hammered by it all the time. Um, the so you've seen the compostable cups, right? right? And everybody's like, "Ooh, it's compostable." It's not fucking compostable. It's industrial compostable, which means it has to go to an industrial composting facility to be composted, which uses more energy than a recycling facility if you were to recycle something. So it's actually worse for the environment, and there's a lot of places in Canada and Europe that have completely outlawed them, because if mm. they, and if they get in the waste stream of regular recycled plastic, they fuck it all up. So um, 
hell of a job on the marketing though because they did a good job with that making people think something that's not true well yeah like in yeah. seattle and in california and a couple other places in the u.s they're the only cup that's illegal to use within the city limits hmm. because of the laws that have been passed so pretty outstanding well and we find that all the time in business i mean if you think about it things we're learning today about diet drinks and stuff like that and how they're not yeah. really as healthy as people oh, you know, thought they were. Yeah. Have you seen Adam Maroon's Everything? Oh, I love that show, dude. Oh, yeah, it's that great. is the best show on television right now. It's really oh, fantastic. Oh, dude, that's he so should, funny. He should do one on, on that. Oh, yeah. Like the jaywalking one. That oh. was pretty good. My favorite one so far is the one on voting. How everyone is obsessed with did you vote, did you vote? And I've known since I was a kid that the popular vote does not mean dick in this country. Everyone thinks we have this fair democratic society and it's all about the electoral college, which is dictated by very few amount of people that don't give two shits about your vote. I'm not saying don't vote, but I'm just saying be educated about what's important. You know what I mean? Cause all that fanfare about going and voting, people are using that to, to, uh, uh you know, ha- make people think that, it's more important than what it is. And it's really, you know what I mean? That's important. So what, so, so then what's the skinny on that? Then why is, so God, everybody's going to hate to hear this. But I don't, I don't vote because well, I can't you, I, that I know of anyway, because I'm a convicted felon, but, um, yeah, I don't vote. I wouldn't vote anyway. I don't know enough to vote. Well, that. most people, most people aren't smart enough to realize that they don't know enough to vote. And you are right. That is why the Electoral College exists. And that's why the, the forefathers, you know, when they wrote the Constitution and all that shit about voting, they didn't want the public voting. They really didn't. And that's probably smart that they didn't. But this day and age, with the media the way that it is, and people actually can get educated and could have an educated vote, isn't, I don't know that it should be that way anymore. You know, if I want my vote to count, it should count. If I'm going to take the time to study and to yeah, you should almost have to pick pass aside. like some sort of exam in order exactly. to vote. Yeah, seriously, how to, there's a lot. Absolutely, to know. how to fix the system? I have no idea. It is broken. Does the popular vote count? Oh, it's really broken. Not at all. I can't wait for the lights to go out. I'm really one of those guys that's just waiting for the world to end because it's going to be awesome. Oh my god! You know what I mean? Like, not a zombie those, apocalypse. You're or like anything. a doomsday prepper. No, I'm not. A, I'm not a prepper. <laughs> I don't need to prep. Are you kidding me? <laughs> No. He's ready for the front row seat to watch it just burn. <laughs> yeah, no, forget it, the prepping. It's gonna, it's going to be great because um, that's Some what it's going to take. Popcorn and a bottoms up beer dispenser is all you need to be fixed. But. Well, that's what that's what Mother Nature <laughs> does, right? I mean, yeah. Uh, I was listening to an episode of Rogan's podcast a, a couple months ago, and they had a catastrophist on, and uh, it was God. It was just mind blowing. I'm sure it was blowing my mind for other reasons but. if it was rogan's you're probably smoking pot while you're listening to it yep maybe and um but they were ta- he was talking about how this isn't the first time as a civilization we've been to this level of civilization correct which yeah. is totally makes a lot of sense yeah. and he's showing like these graphs about hey the world got fucked up real bad here and it was about here here and then it got fucked up again right here and uh it it was it was amazing and it was really so you see all these like uh down in uh, fuck where is that where the stones are fitted like it was done with lasers stonehenge not stonehenge, no, not stonehenge. But, um, i do know what you're talking I don't about know. it doesn't matter but just that somebody had a technology at that time that melted stone into that position using a so what's really cool as an inv- i guess i'm an inventor right mm-hmm. i couldn't have done any of this without 
other people's inventions. I stand on the shoulders of midgets, quite literally. Mm -hmm. People say I stand on the shoulders of giants. That's fucking bullshit. It's a bunch of little steps that we all stand on to make another little step to make another little step. Um, And if anything had gone just a little bit different of a direction... I wouldn't maybe not I wouldn't maybe have something that I needed to do what I did and it would be it would look completely different. So like let's say instead of electricity we use sound. And sound became the normal thing or fucking beta tape became the normal thing instead of VHS. Mm-hmm. And that changes the course of everything. So it was just it was blowing my mind. Well, I always my tell mind people is still blown. when you start talking about the environment and shit and global warming comes up, I'm not to me all you have to do is look at a farmer's almanac and you know that climate change is something that the earth has been going through in cycles since the beginning of time. Well, to think that we could even remotely understand it over the last, what, how long has it been studied? 70 years? Right. Not at all. Is really ignorant. Right. I so mean, the, that's a fraction of a, a second. Yeah. Of, it's a fraction of a millisecond in the, in the grand scheme of things. And we've been here for right. who knows I mean, how long. I don't, I don't have the answer, nor would I ever say, I couldn't even really pick a side. Do I think global warming is affecting us? I don't know. I've studied the farmer's almanac because it keeps coming up in political debates. And to <laughs> me, it's pretty fucking clear that there are weather cycles that maybe we affect it, but it's already happened. Then we'll have another cycle and something just like Rogan says, it'll keep happening over and over. That's what mother nature does to correct. And she'll fucking kill you. doesn't matter. So, but people and with a grain of salt on the rogan stuff because i've heard him talk about cars and i'm like dude no yeah no Mm -mm. you're such a stoner (laughs) he's a stoner stoner. yeah so who knows the other stuff that he's like oh yeah i'm like he's spot on on that but he could totally be carring me here (laughs) well one of the coolest projects i ever got to work on when we were talking about the environment and recyclables i was flown to the bahamas for two weeks to do this documentary on the out islands which are the uninhabited islands in the Bahamas. So you've got like, a, you know, that, the one that Atlantis is on that's got that big hotel. And there were a small group of people that were trying to do sustainable resorts because there was all, these commercial, all this commercial building coming into the Bahamas and these, these people wanted it to be sustainable development as opposed to the way that the islands are being trashed right now. So they literally took me to the dumps where... Uh, all the two, all the American or you know worldwide tourism that comes to the Bahamas gets disposed of on a daily basis, and there's just these huge barges that go from island to island. You don't see them; nobody ever sees them. They go from island to island and go to this one island where they dump all the trash, and it is the most horrifying, disgusting thing you'll ever see. And it happens every day. So there were two developments that were built that were completely 100% sustainable, even with people there. That I got to spend two weeks on just flying from island to island and looking at these things. And they had it down to such a science. The toilets were... What's the word I'm looking for? Not combustible. (laughs) I don't know. Compostable? Compostable. They were compostable. So when you would take a shit in this toilet... (laughs) You know, one day it would be on this level, and then it would go to this level, and then it would go to this level. You know, after a week, you'd pull it out, and it would just be dirt. And they'd use that to plant food that they fed the people with that were visiting the island. All the paths that they had in the woods were like glass that they chopped up and recycled and paved the roads with. I mean, it was all the stuff that they couldn't get rid of. This was so genius. The shit they couldn't get rid of, they would wrap it in boxes and give it to the guests to take home as souvenirs. I mean, they're like little Christmas presents of trash. 
that people would use as souvenirs. I mean, it was brilliant what they did. What like? Just just to get rid of things that weren't. No, I mean, what's an example of a gift that'd be taken home? Oh, it was like because I can think of a few. Well, like if they would have to buy supplies from the mainland for whatever reason. So like, like for instance, a big one was the plastic that would come off the liquor bottles, the lids. They couldn't figure out anything to do with, so they put all this stuff in a barrel and would everything they couldn't actually naturally throw away or get rid of they would form into other things and turn it into little sculptures and give it away and you know you could buy them in the gift shop and you know it was just you know the sculptures thing is cool yeah you know it was totally brilliant i like the idea of being like hey you got to take a bag of trash with you take right. it back to america and people loved take the it bag of trash. but i mean they weren't throwing it they weren't disposing of it in in waste dumps here they were you know putting it on display in their house or whatever so you know it was definitely solving an issue we um i we were working with a cruise line that will remain nameless for this story. Oh no! But I I go on the cruise ship and we're walking around getting a tour and he's bragging about their zero waste emissions, and I'm like I'm thinking I'm had like zero waste emissions. That's that's pretty fucking impressive. Like how are you? I'm looking around. I'm like beer bottles. There's cruise lines are the worst. How are you? How are you doing that? And it finally got to the point because he'd mentioned it so much, like bragging about it, like just pounding his chest over it, like this is a huge thing they promote. I'm like, well, how do you achieve 0% waste emissions? Like, that seems really un- crazy. He's like, well, what we do is we take all the garbage and the food stuff, we just dump that overboard. And then um, we take all of the other garbage and we put it in the incinerator and we burn it and we use it to, you know, we burn it and we use the energy from that to run some stuff on the ship and then we just dump that in the ocean. I'm like, so you just dump it all in the ocean? He's like, yep. End of conversation. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well, that's, I guess that's it. As long as you can define (laughs) zero waste emissions however you want, you can say whatever you want. Just dump that shit in the ocean. Right. That sounds very Al Gore-ish. Yeah, it does. (laughs) You know, I want to talk about all the green initiatives, but my house burns and uses so much fuel, but it's okay. Because I pay an extra tax for it. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like that makes it go away. No, it totally does. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. It says so in his little charts that he mm-hmm. had. He was, and he's, the, he's responsible for all the global warming stuff. Oh, I know, right? Bastard. Well, and the he internet. In, he invented the internet, the internet, so. He invented the internet. Um, can't, nobody can take that away from him. <laughs> no. <laughs> and Next. here I thought it was NASA. <laughs> Next is going to be Darpa. a pickle jar thing that says from Al Gore on it. <laughs> Al Gore, the did you come up with a name for this pickle jar? No, mm-mm. the perfect picker pickle pecker. Yeah, <laughs> never got that far. Well, Josh is the king of names with bottoms <laughs> yeah. up beer, so you yeah, know exactly. You got to come up with a good name first. That my, way, my app has a great name, but I can't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a really we gotta bad. Got to get all ep- listeners to sign an NDA by know, clicking right? this. You've signed <laughs> this NDA. By downloading the episode, you've agreed to these terms. It'd be like an Apple contract. Yeah, and, right. Yeah. I'll just play a small little, you know, sounder throughout the thing that if you are listening to this, you have agreed to the NDA. If you are listening <laughs> to this, you have agreed to the NDA. It'll just play underneath everything. Nobody's gonna want it. After listening to the show, they're gonna be like, No. They're gonna get halfway through it. I don't I don't wanna hear it. <laughs> I'm not gonna waste my time on that. Have you had app ideas yet? Have you done anything like that? No, I've been really now? I mean I got a lot of ideas. Yeah. I have a lot more ideas. A lot of them revolve around this contraption for the most part. So it's you know, a lot of uh, production 
stuff. We're, we're growler fillers coming out in the next six weeks. That's going to be cool. It's very different, unconventional in how it works. So, yeah. You know. Poke the hole in the bottom of the growler, see what happens. No, no, it fills it from the top. What? what? I know, right? <laughs> yeah. I hate being out of beer on this show. I really want out I know. of beer right now. I know. Well, it, again, we were talking about your guys' uh, the highest points in your life and stuff, and I'm thinking the low point of my life is letting <laughs> the beer go once again. Uh, I still haven't heard a good fuck-up story from you. You keep, like, skirting them. You're like, I got lots, and then you're like, none. I got uh, his first wife no oh that would be it <laughs> touche my friend yeah we could trade first wife stories. actually don't say that because she'll probably be out there with a gun <laughs> um i guess i would just really have to say working on one thing for over 12 years and it not happening is this the 500 yeah thing? Mm-hmm. i mean literally it's been almost 12 years they say 15 years is- i guess but i think after this year so what's the jam up? Seriously, is there no funding? Um, the jam up is, well, yes, ultimately it comes down to no funding. And it's funny because I have, I mean, in my possession, I've got three finance documents, actually four now, where c- groups have agreed to finance the film, sign paperwork, had press releases, good to go, and then they back out. And of course, it's actionable. But in order for me to pursue those things, it's going to cost money. Right. And so they know that. So there's this Hollywood's wrought with shit like that, you know, so that's kind of a big frustration right now. Really what it is. That's really normal in general, though. I mean, if you had four people back out, you just need four more people that won't back out. No, I mean, I'm just saying it's 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 really different people as far as investors and stuff like I've had, you know, way more probably way more back out than actually invest sure i mean yeah no i get it that's why i keep that's why i keep doing it i had when i originally started i knew that there's 200 year anniversaries for that particular project one is the hundred the actual hundredth running of the race and one was the hundredth hundredth anniversary of the building of the track and i figured when i first started i had seven years to hit that first mark and i thought well surely that's that's going to be a no-brainer i mean who hasn't heard of the Indianapolis 500? It's the largest single-day sporting event in the world, and it has been for almost 100 years. Oh, my God. It's the most amazing shit show. Oh, totally, yeah. I it's mean, beautiful. That it's in, indescribable. Yeah. That in and of itself is enough, to, you'd think, to make a project like that be easy. Uh, you know, and it, like I said, it went through several variations, different, tons of different actors, tons of different producers, a couple different directors. Um, but for whatever reason, it all comes down to when you try to do it first, I started, I tried to do it independently, no studios involved whatsoever, go to independent financers. There's a lot of rich car guys out there that you would think, you know, would want to be involved in that. But we have to recreate the the original 33 cars. Some rich car collector is going to want those cars. They're going to pay a million bucks a car. That's $33 million right there. They were in the movie. They have value. That's a that's an asset that can be, you know, stored, resold. That price whatever. seems a little high. Well, we, we <laughs> did we did actually make the first car. We we, we recreated the Marmon Wasp, a guy down in Chattanooga, Tennessee named Corky Coker's actually Is it, it the one that's at Fry's? No. That's just a picture. I, I think there is they do have a shell in there, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's not that. This is actually uh full-scale 100 percent replica of the marmon wasp it's never left the speedway grounds oh, except really? for this one time they let it go down to chattanooga he completely took it apart refabricated the entire car 
uh, and made it for the film. Um, we were going to do all of the cars because at the time we had the funding. Uh, and then, you know, that, that funder, that particular funder backed out, but I've used that car since then to, you know, try to drum up. And, uh, there's a company called RM auction. That's the biggest like sort of classic car auction house in the, in the, in the world did a, did a price analysis for all the cars and he was putting them all about a million bucks a piece cause they're one of a kind. Mm -hmm. Those cars don't exist anymore. And all the cars were that were in the race back then were built for that race. They were purpose. Well, actually that's not entirely true, but for the most part, purpose built for that race. So they just don't exist outside of that time period. And so to have duplicates of those cars, the way this one were, they were about a million bucks a piece. I wish racing was still like that. Yeah, it's just like not build though. the fastest thing you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now there's too and many rules and like too yeah, much safety. They're all the same. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, a uh, few people die and everybody freaks out. <laughs> yeah, that's like, kind of the name of the game, right? That's what back that's then. What we're there yeah. Do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> hey man, I could talk about that shit all day. Don't get me started. <laughs> what but, about you how know, the racing yeah. rules are bullshit? Do we still have figure eight tracks anywhere? Fucking hey, we have one of the best figure eight tracks. On the planet here in Indianapolis, yeah, my Speedrome? Are you kidding me? Oh, that's right. My uncle still races there. In years. There, yeah, yeah. My ex-girlfriend took me there as a surprise. So I used to drive a stock car back on a dirt track at home when I was a kid in high school, and I was raised on a dirt track. I mean, my dad drove a sprint car. My grandpa, the next step would have been any car for him, and um, here on the team. Anyway, she knew that about me, and she's like, "I'm going to take you to a racetrack." And she takes me to the speedrome as a surprise, as thinking like this is a racetrack. And we go there, and I'm like, "Awesome! This is the coolest thing ever." No, sweetheart, this is not real racing. But thank you. We pull up. There is a cop right as we pull up. There had just been an accident. There's a cop running across the track, pulling his gun. <laughs> nice on a fist fight that was happening in the infield. Two hillbillies had crashed into on a figure eight track, right? And we're about to beat the shit out of each other. They're at gunpoint to get him to stop fighting. They go their separate ways. I'm like, this is, God, this is amazing. It's yeah. one of the, it's one of the best things to do in Indianapolis. Oh, yeah, is go to the figure sure. track. You go? Yeah. I mean, I haven't gone probably in 10 years, but I used to go when I was a kid all the time. Yeah. My uncle would go and race school buses and shit in that thing. It's tiny little track. Too. Yeah. He took my, fr I, uh, I got inherited an AMC station wagon from my stepdad as my first car. Nice. And I had an AMC Rambler, 1964 <laughs> AMC yeah, Rambler station wagon was my first car. Yeah. I got pulled over in that car once and the cop, pulled me over and he goes what year was it it's like 79 or something like that still awesome. i don't know actually no it was this it was 72 it was 72 because my dad graduated in 74 so it was a, it's a big baby maker is oh all the thing yeah is. oh yeah. yeah this cop comes up and he goes you know why i pulled you over and i go well, no he goes this car just doesn't look safe i'm gonna check it out <laughs> i mean that's had wood panels and shit falling off of it you know it was funny but no, yeah, we used to go there, and my uncle took that car after I got rid of it and put that in the figure eight, you know, so I got to watch that thing get destroyed. Yeah, no, it was a great time. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. <laughs> well, what, do you want to cover anything else? <laughs> hey, man, whatever. I'll sit here all day. It's pretty hard to Clearly, I have nothing else to do with my life. All my failures. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Woe is me. He's an artist, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> Struggling the tortured artist. soul. Tortured soul. <laughs> tortured soul artist. That's okay. <laughs> I got mushrooms at the house. We could go do that. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> That's something I haven't done since college. I mean, I've never done ever. 
<laughs> I was only joking anyway. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, I think we've covered it. I know, okay. we're out of beer. Yeah. I gotta fix that. Mm-hmm. It's like a bad date. It's a, <laughs> when the liquor's gone. It's no good. Yeah. Where's Steve Hirschberger at? He needs to, he needs to hook us up, so I've got like a little thing telling me that. To, oh, yeah, so we know. Yeah. He he runs another company in town that uh, is tackling the beer world. It's Steady Serve, and it uh, analytics on anything you want to know about beer and how much you've got left, when you should start ordering, what people are drinking. I mean, all Doesn't kinds your of. Does POS tell you that shit? No, because foam and people steal. Oh, this goes above and beyond. It weighs the kegs as they empty. Oh, it's pretty neat. It's the nicest cool. system like that I've ever seen. So, but most importantly, it has his. The part of it that I think makes it work the most is the boring shit that uh, they do. He's big into the analytics. Stuff yeah. that bores the hell out of me. That's, I mean, you want to talk about stuff that fucking makes my head hurt is is that. Yeah. Yeah. Like an Excel spreadsheet. You want to look at one of those all day? But that's probably I'd a rather big put part parts of, on a, in a bin. Or that's out probably of a, a big part of what you need to sell this thing, right? Uh, I mean, the, managing no. the waste and all that shit? I mean, there is no waste. Okay. So there's that side of it. Like, yes. So Steve's... When it's cold enough, that when is. When it's cold enough, it, that is. Steve's thing is fantastic, but it is... Um, he's going to kill me for saying this. Uh, <laughs> but it wouldn't... Yes, it needs to exist because of the, the reorder stuff. I'm trying to backpedal a little bit, but it's this is it's perfect. Like when, it, when it's implemented like it's supposed to be, mm-hmm. it's absolutely perfect. And it's implemented like it's supposed to be 99.9% of the time. So a bar doesn't have any waste. So you know you get 120 servings out of a beer. So you could use your POS system and you would know what people are stealing because the machine never fucks up. Like right now, um, people it's easy to steal because you'd just be like, oh, well, the beer was foamy. Yep. That's really normal. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't happen with that. So and you're not a lot getting of the perfect. Reason, yeah, a lot of the reason the beer stays you know unfoamy i guess would be due to the fact that it's supposed to stay at a certain temperature which of course given our unsophisticated technology and my ineptness sometimes um you turned it all the way up yeah i turned it the wrong way (laughs) it happens i turned it up for cold and you know cooler yes i want to go cooler it actually i needed to turn it the opposite way but whatever this is probably a dumb question but you have to have one of these for each keg right yeah yeah one valve for each keg right one Square panel for each keg. That's actually a really common question. Mm. Yeah. So you can't go like this beer, that beer, that beer. No. And really purely for the only reason is uh, flavor transfer. Mm -hmm. So like they're big on flavor transfer. Like like, have you ever used one of those uh, Coke freestyle machines Mm -hmm. where you get to select your flavor? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing that holds up everybody's line because one person's sitting there looking at it going, I have no idea what I want. Yeah. it's it's, It's a mess. Speaking of that, I just I have my biggest failure. Uh-oh. Oh, okay. I just came to you because you talked about that machine. <laughs> Here it is. I had a guy who was doing my he was handling my portfolio, investment portfolio. And he says, I've got this opportunity for you. Uh it's not come out yet, but in like six months it's gonna be huge. Or whatever it was a year and a half or some bullshit. I go, Okay, what is it? He goes, Well, it's a vending machine that they're going to start putting outside of drugstores and CVSs that rent. Is this his used women's underwear one? No. That was big in Japan? No. He said it, he said it rents movies. 
I said, oh, I said, so you're telling me that right now I can go inside to a blockbuster that's air conditioned and has heat and I can rent a movie or I can go stand outside in the cold, in the rain and whatever and rent a movie. You passed on Redbox. I passed on Redbox. I said, that is the (laughs) dumbest idea I have ever heard in my entire life. That's but a really good idea incites that in people. I guess so. Yeah. (laughs) So don't feel too bad. But yeah, that was. But I mean, had you heard that pitch, would you have bought into that? If you got a nice air conditioner, no, place? I'm the worst. I I shit, I poo poo ideas all the time. Yeah, well, I'm almost like, programmed to do it now. Yeah, and people coming to me with the dumbest, goddamn dumbest ideas, and now I'm just programmed to be like, no, that's stupid. Right, no, I get pitched stupid. movies all the time, like I'm a fucking movie producer. And it's like, well, first of all, you don't have a script, so I don't can't do shit with your idea. You need to write something and register it. And it's the same with inventors. Right. I got an idea. Well, do you have a business plan? Right. And exactly. do you have, yeah. do you, have you designed it? Don't bug me. Don't. You can't. The business plan. That shuts everybody down. We found that out yeah. yesterday. I'm, yeah. I started using it today. Nice. I had somebody email me with an idea that they had. And I said, come back to me with a business plan and we'll talk about it. Right. Yeah. It's Trying really hard to write a business get. plan. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's uh as you were saying before, the business plan technically is not worth the paper it's written on. However, it makes you think. It makes you present the idea in a way that... It's the most necessary piece of unnecessary thing you'll ever put together as a business plan. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely necessary to write one. They are worthless once you're done with them. Which is hilarious because I remember uh, magazines and stuff, and we're talking magazines that don't even exist anymore that were big into the tech space right as the tech bubble was approaching... Trumps. Huh? Yeah, a couple of Trump magazines. You see that uh, John Oliver? Yeah, the John Oliver bit. Yeah, Uh, We'll post that show on this one. (laughs) Um, But basically, you know, it was Business 2.0 magazine. They used to be like, you know, a phone book thick every month or every week that they came out. And they were huge. And they talked about our business plans necessary, you know, because this was the time when you could just walk up, tell your idea and get a million dollars thrown at you. And it was all building up. You know, I remember reading these articles going, yeah. This is the new way to do it. I don't need a stupid business plan. And then, what, a year later, two years later, everything just collapsed. And that was the end of the 90s and rings in the 2000s. And everybody's like, well, need a business plan. <laughs> it sounds like you're describing the late 2000s. Well, people just handed money out for all kinds of shit. It's cyclical. I mean, yeah, I you thought they would have learned that back because 98, 99 was the big, uh, was kind of pretty much the precipice of the bubble bursting for the tech industry. And then oh, we went yep. through a dead zone where nobody, um, nobody was you know giving money for anything. You couldn't get evaluations for shit. You had to have really solid business structures, and the Amazons of the world barely squeaked by and survived. Uh, then, of course, a decade later, we have money again, and we're throwing it at people. And 2008's housing bust and collapses yeah, we again. Were, I mean, my company was born in out of the bust. It, right it, at the time, it was. Uh, devastating to go from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting to have people be like no you're you're a dumb kid in a garage with a 46 million dollar valuation we're not going to give you any money any money and in hindsight i'm really glad i didn't get any money because i wouldn't have been able to perform to that level Mm -hmm. of investment anyway so i mean barely scraping by right now eight years later so it's a you know blessings in disguise are, are what those failures are <laughs> well that's what i'm hoping <laughs> it sounds like you're doing pretty good i'm not sure what you're <laughs> he's just pissed that he's not I'm a millionaire with red box right now yeah right uh-huh <laughs> so, 
But seriously, who? I mean, well, you're not the first to come in here with a with a million dollar idea, or you know, be presented with something. Uh, Matt Hunkler, uh, who runs Verge, who's now in the middle of a lawsuit with Verge.com. Yeah. Um, he runs, uh, you know, the community for startups, and the previous business he had before that was uh, something like uh, oh, what are those things? I forget what they're called now, but like um, those boxes that get sent out for. Uh, uh, like uh, whatever. Thinking. I'm trying to help you. It's right on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> it's like a gift type. Well, you sign up for like 20 bucks a month or whatever, and you wind up getting um, all kinds of uh, things sent your way. I, I know they've got them for everything now. It, mm-hmm. um, where he was doing club it. Club of the month or something. Yeah, it's kind of a club of the month. You get random items. You use them. You decide whether. I know it's big on makeup right now. Uh, his was all about new healthy stuff, green stuff. Um, I know they do it for nerd stuff now. I mean, you basically sign up and you get a random mystery box and then you're allowed to go buy them. And he started that company just before it became big, but it was at the wrong time because Amazon payments weren't there. You know, Amazon shipping wasn't Mm -hmm. there. Things that make it easier for somebody to start that. He had to do it all on his own. And because of that, it was a business that he pretty much decided, well, this is failing. So the shoulders of little people. And then, oh, Birchbox is what I was thinking of. Yeah. And then... Birchbox comes along like a year later and blows it out of the water just because it was the right time for it. Well, I have a similar story in that I, you know, my Mark Cuban letter I said I'm going to frame. I've also got one from Netflix. When Netflix first came out, I had this brilliant idea. I'm like, well, I mean, this is, it was after my Redbox failure. And so I'm thinking, well, okay, I get a hold of Netflix and I said, you know, you've got this subscriber brace. I know you've got money. Why don't you guys produce your own original content? And by the way, <laughs> here's a great movie idea. And they sent me, uh, you know, they took a meeting, passed, sent me this letter afterwards saying, you know, we don't produce our own content. We don't want, you know, we're not buying original programming. And now, of course, we're the largest. That's all they do. That's all they fucking and do. And they're really good at it. Right. But I have this letter from them saying, that's not our business model. That's not what we do. We're not going to engage in that enterprise, blah, blah, blah. But now, of course. Have you reapproached them? No, I haven't thought of that. <laughs> Bye. Damn, golly. <laughs> no, I have actually. And they said no. <laughs> it, I mean, it, you, you got to understand what it's like to come from that side because I feel like I know both sides of it at this point. Oh, Maybe I absolutely not know both sides I mean, of it. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not, you do because you're yeah. being pitched scripts. Like right. you know what it's yeah. like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm not bitter about it. I just it's a frustrating thing to try to navigate in a world where everyone's trying to do that same thing. But to come from being the first person to pitch them on an idea that now is making them millions upon millions of dollars is frustrating. You know. Yeah. I wonder what that magic formula is because there's i mean there are people like people that i have let be our distributors in places as an example there are people that will hound us and hound us and hound us and i'm like dude i don't i just want to deal with you you're too much Mm -hmm. and i'm not ever going to call them and then there are people that are really polite and i never call them because they're too polite and i don't know there's some like magic middle place to get through i don't know i don't either i mean we have i had i've taken meetings that I won't say the network, but they ordered a specific show, historic, true historic Americana that's unheard, that no one knows about yet. Drunk history. No, no, no. This is not something that happened. But so oh. I delivered them Wheelman, which is all of those things. Go in and pitch it after they asked for it. The pitch is great. It's exactly what they ordered. 
and they passed on it. It's like so, and they don't ever tell you why they're passing. No, they don't. It's like, what the fuck? You just asked for this, so we developed it for you, and now you're saying no. But you just have to deal with it, eat it, and move on. Who knows? Yeah. You know, and, and some therapists meetings... exist. Yeah, right? Yeah. I remember one meeting I was in, some lady was talking to her kid's dentist in the middle of the pitch. And we're like, why are we even here? <laughs> you know, whatever. It is what it is. Did you do the storm out? Uh, no, not on that one, but I have before. I didn't on that one because there were people in the room that I couldn't disrespect in that manner. <laughs> but I have definitely done that, yes. And that's, I, I kind of got a reputation for being that guy. And I think sometimes people took meetings just so they could watch me do it. <laughs> They're like, check this. Let's, we got, they'd start a pool. <laughs> right, like, yeah. <laughs> I got him at the five-minute mark. How long is he going to last? I got him at the yeah, five-minute uh-huh. mark. Sure. Yeah, nice. you know. Well, we're at what? We're, we're got to be close to two hours now. Oh, we're going <laughs> Hour thirty, I was just dragging on. Um, so you don't know why your uh, investors in the movie passed? Did anybody ever give a reason there? Uh, no, uh, I mean no one typically does. They just they oh they you know they blow you off, give you stupid reasons that you know don't mean anything. My here my litmus test. To, this is going to sound completely backwards. Perfect. When you have a when you have a film project with as many when you're selling things. For, if we use the 500 movie as an example, it, first of all, there are so many inherent strategic partners that are already involved in what that industry is. It's already before you even begin. If And we have a whole business plan. Made. You can see all the projections, everything. Before the movie's even made, it's made its money back. Just because of typically how movies lose money is companies, distribution companies, put too much money into distribution, P&A budgets. So they'll spend $30 million making the movie and a $200 million promoting the movie, right? Mm-hmm. That's where the movies claim to never make money back. Well, with this project in particular, you know, I've got a contract with Firestone worth over a million dollars because they're going to promote it in their store at no cost to them, at no cost to the movie production company, at no cost to anybody. Mercedes-Benz gave me a contract because they were in the first race. Uh, you know, Firestone had an interest because their tires were on the first car. I've got 30 companies that have given me contracts with similar stories. Mm-hmm. That's all money that's not spent by the, by the distribution company on P&A. So they've already made their money back. So my litmus test is when I talk to someone and they say, when, when you show them all that stuff up front, they say, okay, let us read the script. It's going to sound backwards, but when they say that, I just stop talking to them because if they want to read the script, they've not listened to anything that's been said to them up front, and all they're trying to do is look for reasons to say no or look for reasons to, to, to put you in turnaround for two years while they have you rewrite the script over and over again to their liking. And so, you know, although it's a creative endeavor, that part is not what's going to make you money. And if we're looking at you to be a financial partner, really what you, could be, what you should be concerned about is with what we're selling you in this pitch, not based on story. Yeah, so I can really relate with that. So our stuff says you're giving your money and you're just lighting it on fire. It it might actually literally say that in our contract. Like you get no creative control. Right. You're completely passive. You give me your money based on the pitch I've just given you mm-hmm. or or that's it. But here's where you're getting your money back and I'm guaranteeing your money back. Right. Well, well not I'm not guaranteeing anybody but, their money back. I'm saying but, literally you may as well light it on fire. Maybe you should right. take that route. Yeah, maybe. You know, it can't hurt at this point. At this point. Right. Yeah, let's you read my subscription agreement if you want. Maybe there's some stuff in there. Yeah, it, just, it basically says you're the biggest idiot ever mm-hmm. if you give this person money. Yeah. 
and uh, it's 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 great. And my pitch goes along with it. It's I basically relate. You've seen the new Batman with uh, Heath Ledger as the Joker, uh, mm-hmm. and that scene where he climbs up on the pile of money, shoots all the gangsters, and lights the money on fire. That's my closing line with all investors. That's yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's, it's great. ballsy. Well, it's I mean it. <laughs> well, I, you know, I do things it's like from that. the heart. Yeah, it's, hey man, I agree with that. I do things like that on purpose to weed out people I wouldn't want to be in business with anyway. Yeah, exactly. If they have the mentality to understand what I'm saying and the way I'm saying it, then I want to do business with those people. If they don't, then it's probably just gonna be a big fucking headache anyway. Yeah. So I, I yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's important. It's yeah. I don't know. Hey, I'll ha- gl- gladly help you tell people you're gonna blow their money (laughs) yeah (laughs) i've been really good at it so far (laughs) raising money is one of the most fun things that i have ever done it's it's really been a blast as frustrating as frustrating as it is i actually do like the process i actually do i used to go on job interviews for jobs i didn't want just so i could do the interview that's brilliant i mean i loved i I love doing that I would. I mean, I would, it would piss me off if I hired you, and you'd be like, I, you know, I didn't really want the I job. I got offered a lot of jobs. I think it's like I learned that lesson when I was in college. I was trying to be an actor just for shits and giggles. What a dick! I would go to these. <laughs> the way that they worked in college, they had auditions twice a year, and I would go to them. Didn't really give a shit, but all this whole room of people would be crying and freaking out and sweating because it was their whole life to get one of the three plays they were going to put on that semester. And I didn't give two fucking shits. I just went there to do it and would get parts all the time. And so I realized early on like, you know, that's interesting. So I just started going to job. I would look at the classifieds and go to job interviews. I had no qualifications for whatsoever and just get through the interview the best I could. This is great because this right here is exactly, I mean, it justifies what I've said before. Um, I, I went when I, when I was God when I was late in high school. I went to a Dairy Queen interview that I really wanted that job because Mom wanted again wanted me to get a job. I really wanted that job because my friends were at it and I bombed the interview. So I went to other interviews like at McDonald's and so my next interview was actually at a McDonald's. I didn't want to work at a McDonald's. I didn't, no, I didn't know anybody there. I've heard crap things about it. I just I, I didn't want to work. I was a lazy motherfucker. I didn't want to do shit. <laughs> so I went to the interview and. I was completely fine with the interview because I didn't care. You didn't care. Right? And I got offered a shift manager after never having worked wow. anywhere. Yeah. And I did this at, at least three or four other places where I wound up getting a manager position without taking the job because somehow I started going, how the hell is this working? Yeah, well, yeah. I, I didn't mean, the, care. We've all seen the movie Office Space yeah. where the guy walks in he just <laughs> gives no fucks. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, oh, hey, yeah. all of a sudden he's everybody's best friend. It, yeah. you know, like, I'm not coming in tomorrow. I don't think so. But I've, <laughs> but I've never heard anybody else say that exact. Like, I've said it before thinking, you know, that this must be some cool inner life thing that I learned a long time ago and not really knowing if it actually worked out in the real world for other people. But you just proved that it does. Yeah. I mean, I was just, I don't know why I was doing it other than just for my own shits and giggles, but it seemed... And I've, I was in a Shakespeare because I was uh, leaving a uh, jazz band uh, in college and they had auditions that day and I was like, fuck it, why not? Yeah. Went up there, auditioned and wound up getting a major part in a Shakespeare and I didn't, I wasn't going to take it and then I wound up, well, hell, I got it, might as well do it. So, yeah. It was, I've never been in a play. You out should, Out of fun. grade school. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> when you're a tree? Yeah. I don't think I was a tree. I don't remember what I was, but it was grade school (laughs) 
So probably a tree. <laughs> so probably a tree. Or a bear. Or some other non-speaking character in something. A yeah. rock. <laughs> something covered in paper of some sort. <laughs> There's got to be pictures, right? I would assume so. I'm sure we can find something. That was probably an Indian in like some Thanksgiving play. Oh Makes sense. I lived so a lot, around a lot really of reservations. Is, yeah, it was really racist. <laughs> I heard the best Indian joke the other day. Um, yeah, I'm going to tell it. The uh, It's a little kid. Ah, damn it. I don't want to fuck Dot it up. Dot or feather? No, uh, it's feather. I, I was raised around three Indian reservations. I feel like I have some right Literally, to Literally? That's not part of the joke? No, I, okay. I, I really was. And so <laughs> one day I was in, in class and the teacher was like, we need everybody to sit Indian style. So I went outside and <laughs> la- laid in the gutter with my head on the curb. Oh my God. <laughs> That's bad. I heard that joke the other day and I just, I lost my shit because if you're from where I'm from, you could really relate with it, but I'm sure everybody's going to hate me. I wonder like now, saying this is the last show of Launchpad right here. <laughs> right there. I wonder if now in this day and age of political correctness, if saying the word sitting Indian style is like people will be offended by that. Yeah. Has it gotten that far? I don't know. I mean, the Redskins are still a team, right? They really stood up for that. But they can't do that tomahawk thing anymore, can they? I'm pretty sure, sure people they can, can do whatever, do whatever they want. They want. <laughs> people are still going to protest it. It'll still make news next year, the year after that, the year after that. But, you know, as long as they stand their ground, they're still a team. <laughs> the NFL's not doing anything about it. So, yeah. I don't Is that think franchise they'll... worth that much? They can't force them to tell them what to do. I, I mean, you're taking no basketball idea. teams away from people over racist remarks. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It's a double standard, double standard world that we live in right now. Yeah. I can't speak. <laughs> um, and I haven't even had I've got one glass of beer and that's it yeah, we're out I know my failure again <laughs> see we're talking about failures all the time this is my failure my burden to bear yeah that's okay you can uh, redeem yourself we'll get the backup keg right we did here. we did three we've now had three blown kegs throughout the course of the show granted we always had extra beer to drink until how many podcasts today. have you done now uh, this is number 15 for Launchpad and you've run out of beer three times yeah Wow, I would have brought some beer. She told me. <laughs> yeah. That's the point. I'm, I'm going to start bringing it. I would have brought whiskey anyway. I'm surprised it's not in my car. What kind of whiskey do you drink? Uh, Jameson. Now I'm on a Jameson kid, yeah, but I'm, I'm a Jack a guy. Jameson when we tour, it's Jack Daniels. You should try three gingers. Is that whiskey? Mm-hmm. Okay, it's an Irish whiskey. Okay. It's really, really good. Yeah. I like it better than Jameson. Patty's is also really great. I should. I've Irish had whiskey. Patty's. Yeah, I like Jameson Gold Reserve. I haven't had it. Now there's special reserve and there's gold reserve. Gold reserve is like the best shit ever. Well, have you ever had red breast? It's like no. a Jameson unfiltered. It's, it's from the same company. Okay. It's just, uh, it's done a little bit differently, but it's pretty much a Jameson. That's a step up. I think it's really good. Are you tequila guys at all? I'm a wet with alcohol in it kind of guy. Okay. <laughs> I'm not a tequila guy, but I just, uh, when I was in Mexico, experienced Don Julio 70 and when I say that most people think I'm trying to say Don Julio 1942 because that's a famous tequila yeah which I don't like I don't like tequila but I'm telling you this Don Julio 70 is the best shit you'll ever drink in your life so it's hard to find because I only made it for a year like the whole so it's tequila that doesn't taste like tequila exactly the whole concept that's the kind of tequila I like it was 70 years of knowledge it was their 70th birthday, 70 years of knowledge mm-hmm. of making tequila. They made they made this batch for one year, 
And if you can find it, fucking get it, man. It's so good. It does not taste like tequila at all. It tastes like water. Like I'll drink a bottle of it in a night. Yeah, I do that with a lot of things. <laughs> Except for Cuervo. No, that's oh, absolutely God. the most that's, awful. That's gross. No, see, I do the Milagro tequila. It's pretty good. It's, it's sure pretty smooth. Had. It's also a white tequila or a clear tequila as opposed to the Cuervo bullshit. So it's like silver or Añejo? Or yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> We've digressed to tequila talk. I think we I can guess. wrap this thing. Yeah. That's because we're out of beer. We're dead. We're dead. We're dead in the water. <sighs> and on that note, yeah, Justin, it was great having you on. It was a pleasure. Thank you guys it very was, much. And it listen, was, when I succeed at something, I'll come back. Hey, when I succeed at something, I might fund your movie. Sweet. I'll need to read the script first. Even, ah, you're fired. <laughs> like glory holes for butts sounds amazing <laughs> that was going around facebook for a while the other day. Huh. What, what kind of facebook pages you because <laughs> that sounds like i might want to like them <laughs> <laughs>